Today's scripture reading is from 1 John 2, 12 through 14. Please read with me the parts in bold. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sam. Well, good morning. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Sacramento, and uh, I missed you last week. Uh, actually, last, uh, last week was the first time in a long time that if I wasn't here, I wasn't uh, worshiping or preaching someplace else. Uh, but last weekend, I uh, went with a couple of friends to a fundraiser uh, where we rode 100 miles on our bikes, raise money for uh, refugee resettlement. It was really fun, and I kind of between uh, between VBS and uh, riding 100 miles, kind of did myself in. So I'm gonna I've got some water up here, and I'm gonna I was mouthing some of the words during worship to try to save my voice, uh, but I'm really grateful to be with you, and uh, it was uh, a wonderful time uh, last weekend. Uh, but I missed you. We're here this summer, uh, going through uh, the, the epistles of John. So in the, the tail end of your Bible, there's these three little books that are creatively named 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And uh, we're uh, here in the second chapter of 1st John, uh, writing to little children, to fathers, and to young men, he says. One of my favorite podcasts uh, I discovered uh, about a year ago is called Undeceptions. And uh, their, their mission statement or their vision says, every week on Undeceptions, we'll explore some aspect of life, faith, history, culture, or ethics that is either much understood or mostly forgotten. And with the help of people who know what they're talking about, we'll be trying to undeceive ourselves and let, and let the truth out. I like it a lot. Um, it's hosted by a guy named John Dixon, who's Australian, so he's just fun to listen to. Um, but on top of being a, a, a really thoughtful guy and a committed Christian, Dixon is one of the most generous and curious voices that I have heard in a long time. He's humble when he doesn't understand or know uh, the answers. He's honest and kind even when he doesn't agree or can't endorse uh, something that you're about to hear. And uh, John tours the world interviewing experts in episodes uh, as wide-ranging as the following topics. And this is just to give you a, a few uh, ideas of what they talk about. The Byzantine Empire, the resurrection, euthanasia, Dorothy Sayers, transgenderism, the historical Paul, critical theory, Tim Keller, just war, C.S. Lewis's Oxford, Confederate statues, faith in science, medical miracles, and on and on. Now, <clears throat> if some of that sounds a little bit heady, a little bit heavy, sometimes it gets that way. 
Uh, even when I'm really interested in the topic, sometimes I feel like, oh man, I'm swimming. I forgot where we're at. I, I'm not sure who we're talking to. I can start to feel a bit overwhelmed. Uh, and then almost without fail, and this is in every episode, but almost without fail, right about the time I'm like, okay, I'm just going to pull my ripcord and bail out. John Dixon interrupts the podcast and he says something like this, and I can't do an Australian accent, but it's even more comforting when he does it. And he says, let's hit, let's hit pause. I've got a five minute Jesus for you. And then for a few minutes, Dixon just does his best to bring you back from the brink of whatever topic or crisis or mystery that you were swimming in, back to what uh, it has to do with the basics of following Jesus as a Christian. Why are we talking about this, he says, and let me, let me bring it back to Jesus. And it seems to me that that's, that's what John, the apostle, is doing here in these several verses in the the second chapter of his uh, first John. It's been a pretty heady. It's been a pretty heady letter so far. In fact, he didn't even start with a greeting or an introduction. He just got right into the validity of his witness of the testimony of Jesus's incarnation. And uh, Pastor Daniel has been leading us uh, for the past through a few weeks through a significant passage that is essentially wrestling with the answer to the question. How do I know if I'm a Christian? Or how do you know if you're a Christian? And John has said that if you're a Christian, then you'll live like Jesus lived, keeping the Father's commandments, walking in the light. Your, your character will reflect his character. And John has said that if you're a Christian, that you'll love like Jesus loved. In verse 10, uh, uh, previous, he says, whoever, he, whoever is in the light, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And so here we are sort of wrestling with these, uh, I think, big, difficult, overwhelming, like who can live like Jesus lived? Who can love like Jesus loved? And then right in the middle of this instruction, right in the, the middle of this challenging answer to how do I know if I'm a Christian, there's this break in 1 John. And if you actually, if you have your Bible with you, you, you don't even have to read the words to see the break. You can open to 1 John chapter 2, two and see that the, the text changes literally from paragraphs to stanzas. Um, it's, it changes from instruction to encouragement. It changes from a lecture to a song. You see, John was a pastor. He was apostle, but he was also a pastor. And he knew that when you start getting deep into instructing people and giving them important uh, things to wrestle with, people can start to get discouraged. He probably, he was imagining maybe that as he got to this point in the letter and they've got more important things to say, but he was imagining a few people's eyes starting to glaze over a little bit, right? He had somebody's face in mind. We thought this is about the time that, uh, that Robert's going to pull the ripcord and zone out. And so uh, he, he takes a moment. He knows that uh, when you invite people into the light, they start to get overwhelmed by their own sin. When we really start to consider what living like Christ uh, was in, in his character and his integrity and loving like Christ loved, that if we're honest with ourselves, we, it's very tempting to get discouraged because we just don't measure up. We can't do it the way that we that we know we should, 
We can't imagine sustaining this kind of instruction. Like, gosh, I, I think, I hope I have 40 or 50 more years, right? I don't know if I can do it that long. Sustaining a Christ-like life against our own temptations, against the headwind of a culture that glorifies everything. It seems like sometimes that there's the opposite of patience and faithfulness and self-control and long-suffering and forgiveness and transparency. John knows that we can get discouraged. He knows that thinking about following Christ can be overwhelming. And he knows that many of us often, maybe, think about throwing in the towel. It'd just be easier to not do this. And so the Apostle John essentially hits pause, and he says, I've got a five-minute Jesus for you. And these are the verses that he gently repeats. He, he actually gently repeats three phrases twice uh, to discourage believers, reminding of them, them of the gospel. He says, I am writing you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning." I'm writing you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And then he actually, with a little bit of variation, repeats those same encouragements again. And so uh, in so doing, he acknowledges that it's no small thing to follow Jesus. That living faithfully can feel overwhelming. He validates the magnitude of the thing that he's inviting people to and instructing people in. And so maybe that's where you find yourself this morning a little overwhelmed or discouraged, or maybe you're here because you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, and maybe it's because of this reason. You, you, you look at it, and if you seriously consider the invitation to follow Christ, you say, I'm not sure if it's worth it. It would cost me more than I'm willing to pay. It seems like too much to ask. Uh, but in these three repeated phrases, John is speaking to both of those groups, I think. I think he's inviting all of us to consider... Uh, both discouraged believers and those who are hesitant about the cost of following Jesus. He wants to give us two incredible reminders of the reality of, of living a gospel life. Uh, two, uh, two reminders of the reality of living a gospel life that make it a life of incredible freedom and hope uh, that promise that it is the kind of life that no other uh, living can offer you. Even in the midst of struggles, even when you feel overwhelmed. And so uh, let's take a few minutes this morning and just look at those two reminders. Uh, what John says, uh, he wants to point us towards uh, the premise of the gospel life, or actually sort of three ways to think about the premise of the gospel life, and then the process of a gospel life. And I'm going to argue this morning that uh, to, some, to some degree, the extent to which we are discouraged in our desire to follow Jesus is the extent to which we have forgotten or lost touch with or misunderstood these premises and this process. So first, the three premises of a gospel life. If we ask John in 1 John, why shouldn't I be discouraged? Why shouldn't I be discouraged? He answers. We ask him, why shouldn't I be discouraged? He says, because your sins are forgiven in his name. You ask him, why shouldn't I be discouraged? And he answers, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. We ask him, why shouldn't I be discouraged? And he says, because you know him who is from the beginning. Let's take a minute and look at each of these premises of a gospel life. Be I, do not be discouraged because 
Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. One of the primary causes, I think, of discouragement, uh, Christian discouragement, is a misunderstanding of why and when our sin is forgiven. If we're to ask, how do you know, if you ask a believer, how do you know that your sins are forgiven or were forgiven? Often the answer goes something like this. I know my sin is forgiven because I experienced such an overwhelming release when I repented and gave my life to Christ. It's a, it's a good answer, and it's a wonderful experience. And there, and there are some incredible stories, beautiful stories of how God releases people from the burden of their sin and the, the guilt and the shame that has gone along with it when they repent. But the, the Scripture do, does not say to us that it is the quality of our repentance that gains forgiveness. One year, my wife and I, we were junior high youth pastors, we were at uh, summer camp. And uh, one year while we were, were leading summer camp, we watched as God's, it was the second or third to last night of the week, and we watched as God's spirit just washed over this tent full of junior high school students. Uh, we watched as several of our core youth uh, uh, they emotionally gave their lives to Christ. It was a, a tearful experience in which they opened up their hands and let go of things that they had been holding on to. It was uh, an incredible experience for the whole group. Um, it was beautiful and it was real. The next year, we were at the same camp on the same night of the week, and I watched... Uh, as several of our youth tried to work themselves up into a similar emotional experience. It's Thursday night. Tonight's the night we cry, right? Uh, we, uh, they wanted to feel the same way. They wanted to feel the forgiveness that they had experienced the year before. And uh, if we're pinning our, uh, our assurance of our forgiveness and our freedom from our guilt on our experience of forgiveness, then we're signing up for discouragement. Because if we're measuring it by the quality of our repentance or the experience of our forgiveness, our, our, our experience ebbs and flows. What about when you don't feel like repenting? Or when you can't find that feeling even though you know that you need to? But John says that our sins are not forgiven because of the quality of our repentance or the experience that assures us that we are forgiven. But he says that our sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Or specifically, you might say, the translation would be, on the account of his name. Quick little poll. I'm not trying to call anybody out, but how many people like streaming services for watching television and movies? It's okay, you can raise your hand, right? Netflix, Disney+, Plus, Amazon. We're not going to vote on which one's the best. We, we could wrestle about that later. <laughs> Second question. How many people in here stream on somebody else's account? Right, your brother buys Netflix in Illinois. You have the password. You borrowed your roommate's Disney Plus password, and your computer still remembers it, luckily. Right? The premise of the gospel is not that we are forgiven because of the quality of our repentance or the potential of the life that we will live now that we're God's. We are forgiven, it says, for Jesus' name's sake. Our debt is paid on the account that bears his name. Whose name is on the account? We're forgiven 
for Jesus' name's sake. The premise of the gospel is that, our, is that we are forgiven, our debt is paid, because the gospel says that when God looks at the account of believers, he finds Jesus' record. Jesus' search history, if you will. Right? That the life that he lived that you should have lived, the death that he died that he died in your place. Uh, and the story of the gospel is that he is happy. In fact, he is offering to give you access to the Father under the account that bears his name. On the account that bears his name, we are forgiven for his name's sake. What he has done is accounted to us. And this is something that is actually done and completed, not something that we will hope for, that we're trying to qualify for with bonus points or something like that. Um, it turn, Jesus has died. This is what the scripture says. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ is coming again. Sin and death is defeated, and sins are forgiven for all of those who will receive it in his name's sake. It is completed. It's hard to see it in our translation, uh, but it seems like John just essentially, we, we, we look at it in English and it looks like he essentially repeats himself, little children, fathers, young men, and then he says the same thing again with a little bit of variation. But on the second time through in Greek, he gives the same three answers, but he changes the tense of the verbs from the present tense to a past completed tense. These things are done and true. For followers of Jesus. It's completed. This is the first gospel premise that our position before God does not change with our performance or with the quality of our repentance or our experience or how strong we feel like our faith is. We as believers are forgiven on the account of his name and it's done. John's second answer, why shouldn't I be discouraged? In verse 13, he says, because you have overcome the evil one. Uh, he actually repeats himself a second time in verse 14, gives us, uh, tells us a little bit more about where the strength to overcome evil and the evil one comes from. He says there, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. The word of God abides in believers. What is John talking about? Isn't the word of God the Bible, the written word of God? Yes, that's one correct answer. Does that mean he's talking about scripture memory? Uh, we've kind of overcome the, we overcome the evil one on the account of how much scripture we memorize. I'll tell you what, I hope it's not that because I'm terrible at scripture memory and uh, I'm notoriously bad at remembering addresses in scripture. Aside Man, putting God's word in your heart is so important. Do it. It will be useful to call up the truth when you need it. But thank God we're not being measured by how much we have in there. Right? There are a number of places in the Bible where it uses the word of God, where it does here, the word of God that abides in you, and references to the Holy Spirit interchangeably. Look at this. In Ephesians 5, it says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs making melody to the Lord and giving thanks. And then in Colossians, it's almost the same thing, but it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and giving thankfulness. Look at it again. Here's in the Gospel of John. Jesus says that you need to be born again. 
that truly, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then in 1 Peter, he says that you need to be born again through the living and abiding word of God. Two ways of saying essentially the same thing is that when you become a believer, when we put faith in Christ, you somehow become, and I'm going to use Jesus's illustration, he said we need to be born again. So when I put my faith in Christ, I somehow become inseminated with the Spirit of God, with the Word of Christ, with the the Spirit of truth. Somehow, in some way that is uh, similar, more similar to, less similar to a mechanism or a button that's pushed and more similar to the way that an egg inside of a mother is fertilized by something from the outside from a father and a baby is born. Somehow the vitality of God, the, the, the life of God, the, the spiritual DNA of the God who gives life comes into the heart of a believer and starts doing stuff. Second Peter 1.4 says we are partakers of a divine nature. It starts getting in there and screwing things up, messing up our business, dismantling sin and bearing fruit. The scripture says that the, spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Preacher Tim Keller says, Christianity is not just a function of deciding to do things. It's not a code or a regimen that I pick up and do. Oh, no. You know what it means to be a Christian? It means something from the outside has come into you and it's messing with your insides. It's an outside force, and it's intervening. Maybe you've been away from church for a long time. But you're here today because there's been something wrestling in your heart that you haven't been able to put down. Something that you just can't get rid of that's been pulling you back. The Christian life is a lot less about using tools and truths that God gives us to accomplish the things in our lives and in the world that we want. We'd like it to be that way. We'd like to be able to pull levers and, and apply uh, golden, you know, silver bullet verses and make things happen. That's the way we'd like it because that puts a lot of power in our hands. Uh, but the Christian life is actually a lot more about submitting to the Spirit of God that is living and active inside of us. Giving in to the word of God that abides in us, searching around in our hearts and our lives and saying to God, here, what can you do with this? Look, I found this hurt. What can you do with this? Look, I, here's this struggle. What can you do with this? Here's this gift that you gave me. What can you do with this? Here's this memory that haunts me. What can you do with this? When we throw up our hands and say, I'll never change, when we feel like giving up because we're struggling against the same old things again, uh, when we say, I will never change, we're actually uh, saying saying less about ourselves and more about uh, the fact that we're denying the power that is within us if we're believers. The one who, uh, over whom the power of sin has no power. Uh, we're told that in the, 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 the Spirit of God has overcome sin and death and the gates of hell will not prevail against him. 
The battle is finished at the cross. And then we hear it again in another completed tense verse as he repeats it. This is the second gospel premise that the power within a Christian comes from God, not ourselves. The Holy Spirit, that indwelling word, has already overcome the world. So it's not a question of if he can change us, but when and how we will submit ourselves and see him do that work. Sometimes it has as much to do with wanting to be in control as anything, right? Christian growth is messy. God doesn't work on the things that we want him to work on. Here are the things I'd like to be done with, right? He's not as concerned about the behavior or uh, the symptom that we feel like is hounding our lives. He's, he's more concerned about the deeper pride, the deeper idolatry, the way that we're giving our heart out to something less than him that's stealing us away from him. We get aggravated because he hasn't taken away this struggle with sin all the while. We're kicking and screaming and resisting in places uh, in our hearts and lives where he is most obviously at work. As if growing in Christ is less of a program that we can plan on and look for results in um, and more like a relationship with a person. Right? People don't do what we want them to do. They don't call us back when we call them. They don't give us the answers we want to give. They don't agree with us. And that's exactly John's third answer to the question, why shouldn't I be discouraged? He says, because you know him who is from the beginning. Three premises of the gospel, that our position before God is forgiven, that the power of a Christian comes from God and not ourselves, and that Christianity is not a program, it is a person. We know him. Believers, followers of Jesus are being invited into a relationship with him who was from the beginning. The freedom of forgiveness which Jesus accomplishes in his death and resurrection and the, the power of having the Holy Spirit indwelling your heart are not made active in our lives by some kind of scientific formula and they're not utilized by us through mastering some ritual or worship service. We understand and enjoy and benefit from our forgiveness and from the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives through the knowing of a personal relationship. It's less like the mechanism or the possession that we want that will provide us with happiness and freedom and more like the relationship of a, the, the covenant of a, a marriage where uh, it's something that's messy and meandering and accomplished through listening and speaking and time spent together learning not just about each other, but to know and be known by each other. We cultivate a relationship with God through listening, uh, listening to his word and listening to uh, it preached and studied. We cultivate it through talking, learning to pray and pouring out our hearts before the Lord and worship together and alone. And through time together in the body of Christ, being known and being known by others in the body. For most of us, if we are discouraged, at least part of that discouragement comes from not having cultivated relationship, personal interaction with God, and not having, not, not being connected, and not having cultivated uh, community with people who love God 
and surround us and believe that the gospel can transform the world. There's one more deep encouragement embedded in the Apostle John's five-minute Jesus. So we said three premises that our position before God is forgiven, that uh, the power that, uh, that we have is from God and not from ourselves, that this is a relationship with a person, not a program. Uh, but John says something also about the process of a gospel life. And we can see it in the funny way that he addresses his audience. So it's a terrifying moment, I think, in every early childhood. I think most of us have been on one side of this example. Many of us have been on both sides of this, but uh, we've all been a kid. Many of us have been the parents, but uh, the situation is this. I'll, I'll tell it from the parent's side of the perspective. You're awakened by a child who's lurking near the bed in the middle of the night. The child has aroused themselves from their own bed and walked past two functioning bathrooms to come to your room and stand right next to your head and say, I think I'm going to barf. What do you do? Well, you don't say, you know, since you weren't mature enough to go to one of the two toilets that you passed on the way, I'm not going to help you. Mama responds, right? Daddy's still halfway in our house anyway. I'm still trying to figure out which way is up. And she's up. She would love a more mature approach, right? She would uh, love the nauseous child to consider their options and, 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 you know, do the right thing. But she responds to the childish request. Nonetheless, she erupts with love and action to care for this kid. The Bible is full of times when Jesus responds in love to requests that he thinks are immature and childish. Right when the disciples awaken him afraid in a stormy sea, they say, don't you care that we're perishing? Right, or when someone says in Mark chapter 9, he, they, he, uh, the, the father of a, an ill child says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion. And Jesus says, if I can? All things are possible. John says three different times, little children, fathers, young men. I think these are in some ways interchangeable, not intended to be gendered, but he's a man and he's speaking in that perspective. He goes through that, progressive, that progression twice. Little children, fathers, young men. He acknowledges that we're all in different places. What, that's, what he's, that's what he's doing. He's acknowledging that there are phases in the process of a gospel life. It's okay. It's okay to be super accomplished. You can be a you know, Fortune 500 executive earning six figures in, uh, in, in early middle age and be a baby Christian. The premise is the same. Your position before God is forgiven. The power comes from the Holy Spirit and you have a relationship with a person. It's okay to realize that you've been a Christian a long time and maybe you've become a daddy when it comes to theology, right? And realize today that you're just a baby in prayer. It's helpful to know that uh, you're in the middle of a season in your life when you have zeal and idealism and you might be qualified in that phase that he's saying, young men, you know, you're out there, you're, you're, you're fighting for the faith, 
for the faith, but it's okay to realize that that doesn't mean you have enough experience to have the wisdom that you need to know that you're a father or a mother when it comes to things of God. And it's also encouraging to realize that in each one of these situations, as John speaks to this church, he says, God responds. Fathers, mothers, little children, young men, young women, if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. If you are in Christ, then there's a, a spirit in your heart that is at work, even if you're resisting it. 